the idea that somehow the chairman of British Telecom or indeed anyone else was in any doubt that we were going to introduce a windfall tax, I find rather hard to say. No one who knew Diana will ever forget her. Millions of others who never met her, but felt they knew her, will remember her. Yeah, well, I mean, I wasn't going to go at first, because I don't know, you're going to get slagged off for going one way or the other, or slagged off for not going, but I filmed my mum yesterday, my mum said that I'd better go. That there is no question of Sinn Féin participating in any talks whatever unless there is a clear, credible and unequivocal ceasefire. Hello and welcome back to Barely Getting By the Long 1990s, Episode 3. So, Emma, I know you're a bit of a royal watcher. How have the British royal family fared during the coronavirus crisis? Well... Sort of well and not that well, haven't they? I mean, they've had a rocky few, well, rocky few years generally, and then of course Prince Charles was the first kind of celebrity casualty of coronavirus, though he seems to have had a fairly mild case. But then recently, the Queen kind of emerged as everybody's favourite British leader, didn't she? Maybe in the in the absence of other leadership, but she gave what was kind of almost universally hailed as a really stirring and, and wonderful national address about coronavirus and national sacrifice and et cetera, et cetera. Yeah, 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 she did. Um, She she sat in front of the nation in what was like a very striking green get-up and told them, you know, we will meet again, which for anyone who isn't acquainted with the pop music of the Second World War is a, is a very famous Vera Lynn song that my nana, I know, used to sing almost interminably when I was a child. Yeah. We'll get to my nana, we'll get to my nana later in this episode. <laughs> I think so. But, and that, I mean, I guess that's like kind of the, the Queen's target audience with the, with that um, evocation of, of the Second World War, which we're hearing over and over again. So, so the royals have seemed to have kind of, I guess, m- maybe are starting to emerge from what's been a pretty bad year. But of course, in the in the theme of this season of barely getting by, we are talking about the nineteen nineties and a particularly bad year for the royals. Nineteen ninety two is not a year on which I shall look back with undiluted pleasure. <clears throat> in the words of one of my more sympathetic correspondents, it has turned out to be an annus horribilis. So 1992 was the year of Princess Anne's divorce. It was the year of the publication of Princess Diana's tell-all book. And it was also the year of a fire at Windsor Castle. And it was also, also the year of Prince Andrew and Sarah Ferguson, the Duchess of York, also affectionately known as Fergie, their separation. Do we want to talk about Prince Andrew? Oh, I don't I don't really think we do, but I guess part of the problem is nobody wants to talk about Prince Andrew and and how gross he is in his associations with Jeffrey Epstein and and the connections there. So I think we do need to acknowledge them, but um yeah, I guess I don't want to think about it in too much detail. I'm not sure about you. Yeah, look, to be honest, I'd rather avoid it and, you know, let's um let's let's get to Princess Di. <laughs> yes, yeah. Yes. Good call. So and where were you when Princess Di died? So 1997, August 1997. Yes, that's right. So I was in the car on the way to my cousin's house um, with my parents and my brother, and I have a very vivid memory of driving up their really steep driveway as the news was breaking on the radio and my cousin's kind of walking out the back door with very pale, shocked faces. I think I was probably a little bit young to really understand 
what it meant, but it's probably the first kind of, you know, global news item that I really remember. Yeah, yeah, me too. Absolutely. I um I mentioned my nana before and look you you said before that people in the UK of a certain generation is very fond of invoking memories of the Second World War um, as, I guess, a rallying point for the coronavirus crisis, and I think that's seriously misplaced. I would also take anyone's invocation of the spirit and raise that to my nana, who is the embodiment of Blitz Spirit, you know, she 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 worked in an underground munitions factory during the Second World War, and you know she was chased down the street by a German German plane during I don't know anyway, family myths. Um, but the point I'm trying to make in a roundabout way is that my my English grandmother was a Diana obsessive and an absolute royals tragic, and I was at her house on the day that Princess Diana died glued to the TV and it was yeah yeah her secondhand trauma was something else yeah for for little kids I think and for a lot of us that you know for us kind of comfortable middle class kids that was the first experience of a, a real public outpouring of grief in that way and I think that's kind of important you know we're not just talking about this because we love the royals and it's fun to talk about it's actually a kind of culturally iconic moment for the 1990s especially in Britain yes yes absolutely and where I think we want to go more seriously with this episode is to talk about what the death of Princess Diana meant as a watershed moment in British culture in and in even in British politics. That's right. And so so in the last instalment of this episode, we spoke at length about Tony Blair, who, who won power in 1997, which is the same year that Diana dies. Have I got my timeline so, right there? Yeah, we spoke about the 1997 general election which was in May 1997. Um, Princess Diana died in the car crash in Paris in August. So Tony Blair had been Prime Minister for what? Less than four months. Wow, okay, which is a a massive test for a a new, a kind of pretty fresh face in politics. How how did he go with this test? Did he pass it? He passed it with flying colours. This is is a scene that is dramatised, and I'm I'm not 100% sure how accurate it is, but it's dramatised in the film The Queen, in which Helen Mirren played Queen Elizabeth in the days after Diana's death. But Tony Blair very famously, in one of his early addresses on the subject of, of Diana's death, he called her the people's princess. The people everywhere, not just here in Britain, everywhere, they kept faith with Princess Diana. They liked her, they loved her, they regarded her as one of the people. She was the people's princess. And that was a label that stuck, and it was also quite definitive for the early days of his prime ministership. Wow, okay, I didn't realise it was Blair that had had coined the term people's princess. That's a piece of political genius right there. Well, I think it was Alistair Campbell, who was his communications chief at the time, who came up with it. But then my source for that is the Queen, so don't quote me on that. I will look into this later and provide details in the show notes. Um, It was really important and it was quite definitive for Tony Blair and in the sense that it really helped him to stand out and stake his claim as being a modernising Prime Minister. And what I mean by that is he was sort of putting himself and putting Princess Diana on the side of a modern public against the ancient institution of the Crown and their traditions. And, you know, I mean, that becomes quite clear when you think about how in recent years under 
conservative under conservative prime ministers and especially under Boris Johnson and also in light of you know this sort of resurgent nationalistic jingoistic imperialist uh, culture that has come about in you know in the time of Brexit how unusual it is to have a prime minister and how rare it was to have a prime minister who really decisively aligned himself with a modern future-facing public as opposed to tradition and that's really interesting in a UK context. Okay and is that I mean that's kind of connected then to to the enormous public outpouring of grief which is not very British? It's well there's quite a good book on this which again I will link to on in the show notes. I think that there's a degree to which the idea of a of you know the English or the British stiff upper lip is sort of a reinforcing myth, but yes, the sort of collective outpouring of grief on you know at the time of Princess Diana's death was unusual, and it was really a watershed and kind of legitimised um, you know public displays of emotion in a way that you probably you really hadn't seen in Britain for for a very very long time. Um, I mean, as an aside, I, you know, we all, we're all probably familiar with the images of the, you know, piles and piles of flowers and cards and the crying crowds outside Buckingham Palace after Princess Di died. I was actually, I was in London on the 10th anniversary of her death and you saw, like, it was incredible. It was incredible. The sort of, just the volume of memorabilia that was around and the way that people were still expressing that, you know, that sort of the the residue of that public grief 10 years later it's it was a it was an incredibly potent moment that you know we certainly didn't appreciate as little kids and even i didn't appreciate when you know i had my my grandmother going absolutely off the rails about it i think that that's right you know as a little kid i certainly didn't appreciate it but it is it's very kind of 1990s in that way isn't it because it's a kind of a real it, it is the display of kind of individuals individualism and and celebrity culture. Yes, and one that was enabled by very much enabled by the global mass media, which which probably was which wasn't possible before, you know, before the the death of Princess Di. And what what do you think Diana meant for celebrity culture in the in the 1990s and and going beyond that? Yeah, and this is where she was important not just in Britain but as a an icon of the West and particularly the Anglosphere is one of the things that jumps out at me about Diana is how she was so familiar and that was something that she you know she really used to her advantage in things like the you know her tell-all confession and her famous panorama interview which were all taken these are all things that took place in the years before her death at the time of her separation and her divorce from Prince Charles she was familiar she was intimate she was confessional in a way that celebrities hadn't been previously like you know i think people were used to celebrities who were quite aloof and you know sort of had a kind of mystique around them diana sort of tore down that barrier and in that way it was kind of kind of prescient for our time because what we see today is a lot of celebrities whose whose persona is built on that on that on familiarity and relatability. And Diana, for all that she was an aristocrat and a princess, she was probably the first the first celebrity to do that. Okay, and I think the I mean the royals have certainly learnt from that. Like we see the young royals now doing that with their you know the put the sharing the photos of their children and you know making sure they wear Zara jeans every now and again just so that we you know we can relate to them on a human level and they're they're just like us, which of course is completely manufactured oh. manufactured. But 
But as you say, this is this is kind of a lesson out of Diana in the 1990s. Oh, God. One, can I just say that one of my most hated, like, recurrent clickbait articles is the one about Kate Middleton wearing the same, you know, 200-pound dress three times. Therefore, she is just like us proles. Like, yeah, for, I cannot, footnote, she's yeah. got her 6,000-pound earrings on to match yeah. those, those well, she's, well, she's also wearing a 200-pound dress. I mean, I, I couldn't afford that. Yeah. Um, yeah, but I think it's, but that's also been perilous for them, hasn't it? Because that that carefully curated relatability still has boundaries, and you know it's it's dangerous for them because when sometimes that does get out of their control. Um, you know, I think we probably can't because it's libelous, but there are all sorts of rumours that swirl around the royal family and younger royals in particular that get shut down at a moment's notice. And I think that that's also one of the one of the struggles that Meghan Markle has had as she's navigated her time as a royal, you know, with, of course, the added layer of the British press's hideous racism towards her. That's right. And, and I mean, you know, speaking of racism, the royals, of course, have a, a, a long history of, of supporting both systemic racism and, and being just personally racist, like Prince Philip, um, which kind of in a roundabout way b- brings me to another kind of culture of the 1990s that is now normal to us, but probably wasn't at the time. And that is, of course, around conspiracy theories, which, which swirl and continue to swirl around Princess Diana. Yeah, look, and there's absolutely no reason to believe conspiracy theories that, you know, Prince Philip ordered her death. It just, it it doesn't make sense. There's a very good Mitchell and Webb sketch that we'll link to in the show notes on this one. Um, But you're right. I think the fact that people were kind of, there were sections of the public that were itching to grapple on, to grasp onto a conspiracy theory or a conspiracist explanation for Princess Diana's death, it... It says something about how sections of the public can react in times when of danger, of shock, and when they feel that they're under assault. And you know, it's much more—it's much more an American phenomenon, the, the the conspiracy theory. But the fact of people acting like that way—that way in under duress—I think it speaks to a theme, not just of the '90s, but kind of a perennial theme. Um, when it comes to you know celebrities and celebrity deaths, that people will often reach not for the most logical explanation or the explanation that they're given, but the most dramatic one and the one that satisfi- satisfies you know their previous prejudices. In this case, probably against the royal family and in favour of Princess Di. I guess the other thing that I think about in the context of the nineteen nineties and and you know this being a decade without history is is Fukuyama's idea about. The, the end of history and the end of ideology. You know, that in the 90s, there's no longer a kind of overarching, motivating, ideological crusade. And so, you know, is it that people are trying to fill that hole? Yeah, maybe. I think, I think maybe if you want to connect Fukuyama to conspiracy theories, then, look, I always think about conspiracy ter- theories in terms of, you know, a, a failure of understanding causality and a failure of structural thinking. I think that's... That's their kind of the conditions under which conspiracy theories flourish, and that's that's absolutely what Fukuyama was talking about when he talked about the nineteen nineties. You know, he was he was saying that there was no there was no grand there was no longer any sort of grand unifying theory, and there certainly wasn't any theory of collective action to change and and shape politics. So maybe that's that's why people decided that Prince Philip did it. 
Okay, so on that note, I think I think we might sort of leave it there and con- continue our discussion of, of British culture in the 1990s and, and the, its legacies for today when we look into Chloe's absolute standout favourite topic, and that is, of course, Britpop. Fairly Getting By is supported and produced by RMIT University. Original theme music is by Stuart Cullen. <laughs>